In this episode, Craig Carter and I talk about Christianity and classical theism. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> you have nice. to arrange the set a little bit. Yeah, my, <laughs> my, crew is, uh, my crew doesn't come into work anymore. Yeah, yeah. Mine's not quite there yet. I have to order a better lighting setup, but I think library is a good background. So uh, you you really, pro tip is to have Bavik uh, behind you visible. Right. And Elite is when you have uh, one book, volume three is off the shelf, looks like you're reading it currently. Nice. <laughs> All right. So welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Craig Carter, and my name is Wyatt Graham, and we're going to talk about classical theism, the great tradition, and all things in between. Now, before I uh, jump in introductions, I want to say I actually, before I met you in person, I had read your book, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, and I absolutely loved it. And I was looking at it again today, and I still remember reading the preface. Uh, and you have there this kind of standard way that people read the Bible. And then at the end, you say, I basically disagree or would want to modify that. And that was kind of marked in my memory. And I think part of it was because it made so much sense. <laughs> it was like, I disagree too. <laughs> and kind of finally have someone who is evangelical, conservative, love the Lord, uh, and yet kind of saying what is more or less common sense, or at least tied into what Christians have said for roughly 2,000 years. So that was my entryway into getting to know you. Then thankfully after that, I've got to know you a little bit in person because now we're both in Ontario and I've grown to even uh, kind of appreciate you more as a scholar and as a, as a man. So could you just briefly introduce yourself to people maybe who don't know who you are, your kind of teaching ministry and your church and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, you froze there for a oh. second. You're asking me to tell, say a little bit about my, my yeah, background. Yeah, just briefly introduce yourself and your background, your church, your ministry, your, your teaching. Yeah, I, I was a pastor for seven years uh, in the Baptist churches in New Brunswick and PEI. And then I went back and did my PhD under John Webster at the Toronto School of Theology, worked on Karl Barth and John Howard Yoder. And then I... Um, was uh, since then I've been in higher ed. I was at Crandall University in, in Moncton for uh, eight years and I've been at Tyndale since 2000. I teach full-time. I was in administration for a long time but now I, I am uh, teaching and um, I uh, also am a theologian in residence at Wesley Heights Baptist Church in Ajax which is a, um, a fellowship Baptist church of about 500 people and I teach uh, an adult Sunday school class with about 120 people in it. And I, I teach a men's Bible study on Thursday night where we are studying the Old Testament. Uh, we've, we've done hermeneutics and Old Testament. And in the fall, we're starting New Testament. Um, and I do other things. I answer questions. I put books in the library. I, I preach. I, I do various things uh, as part of a multi-staff mm -hmm. church. And so I'm married. I have three kids, all adults and out. And on their own and um, one is in Washington DC one's in Ottawa one's in Toronto and we're here uh, in Pickering near Toronto and um, yeah that that's uh, that's about mm. it my wife teaches Bible in the church as well and uh, we um, we have a lot of books in our house and uh, all <laughs> our extra money goes on books and and we uh, we're enjoying life a lot well you know I I won't today, but it'd be really interesting to talk one day about the idea of a church having a position called a theologian in residence. I thought about that before, and it's, it's 
sounds very useful and interesting, but I'm glad that you have that position. Well, I don't think my book could have been written, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, could have been written if I wasn't deeply immersed in a local church ministry like this. And what it is, is the way this works is that it's part-time. And so I'm able to do it in addition to being a professor at Tyndale. Um, and it means that, uh, but I'm as immersed as a pastor would be in preaching and teaching and interacting with lay people. So I've got the best of both worlds. I'm in the academy, but I'm also in the church. And if I was in just one or the other, it wouldn't work nearly as well. Uh, hmm. I find it's, re it, it's, really, it's really salutary to have a man in the group ask you why we just studied JEDP and what difference it makes. And, and, and to have to answer that question. And, it's, and, 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 and there's a moment of panic when you realize that, that, that if you say, well, because you have to know about this because it's so widely taught in the university world that if you don't know this, you will be seen as a fundamentalist or as a non-learned person. And to realize that the person you're talking to could not care less about that. Mm. And then you realize, well, beyond that, why? And it's in that, that's a moment of clarity. Because that's a moment where you're forced to come up with a reason to study this, as opposed to the many other things we could be spending our time on studying. Um, that, that doesn't have anything to do with academic prestige and making your way in the academy and the world at the university. They don't care about that world. They're not in that world. They have no desire to enter that world. They don't even have any conviction that that, from everything, as far as that guy asking the question is concerned, everything I've told him so far about what they believe in that world just goes against his belief in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So why does he want to impress them? He has no interest in that. And, and suddenly, I have to explain why we study that. That is enormously clarifying. Hmm. And would you, is this, uh, so I'm kind of curious, like you, you were into the sort of critical seeing JDP theory and, and presumably were teaching in church given this illustration you just gave. Were, were, were these kinds of moments that you just described, was this kind of the pivot that made you move away from a sort of allegiance to critical study towards, I don't know, what you call the great tradition? Or how did that actually work in your life? Hmm. Well, um, in the next book that's coming out next April, the preface is called um, How I Changed My Mind. And it's, so there's a whole uh, uh, preface describing this. So I'll give you the short version. Okay. I grew up a conservative fundamentalist Baptist. Um, I struggled all through my BA in history of philosophy, my MDiv and my PhD. Uh, with uh, how to reconcile being a fundamentalist and and operating within the world of of critical scholarship and philosophy, um, I I want I embraced enough of the historical critical method to be respectable in the university, but I never was totally all the way into it. Um, in my so, so that means in Old Testament that you you embrace childs, right? Because mm -hmm. you you're not quite there with Wellhausen, but you. You're, you're not going to be with R.K. Harrison rejecting Wellhausen. Childs is this nice, safe middle ground where you can, right. where you can be both critical and theological. Um, I've since come to the conclusion that Childs, you know, is a noble effort that doesn't work. But, 
um, but that's where I was in, in my college and university days. Um, so when I came out of my PhD, I was basically a left-wing pacifist and uh, left-wing in economics, but I was pro-life and conservative in theology. So I consider myself to be a Nicene Trinitarian, but at the same time, I was also interested in uh, uh, the, the relational theism. Uh, Miroslav Volf and John Zizioulis and Colin Gunton and Stanley Grenz, the Trinity is our social program kind of thing. So I wrote a book, my thesis was on Yoder, then I wrote a book on social ethics, and then I had a, a contract to write a book on the doctrine of God, and the idea was to, to, to do a a doctrine of God that was in social relational theism to undergird social ethics. That was the whole idea, sort of Trinity as our social program okay. uh, uh, kind of an approach. And so I believe that the Cappadocian fathers were the real uh, Trinitarians and that Augustine was a monotheist. I, I have swallowed that whole line. And then I actually started reading the church fathers and started reading actual patristic scholars as opposed to modern systematic theologians saying what patristic scholars uh, should say. Hmm. And I found out that the Cappadocians were, had rejected social Trinitarianism and that um, fourth century pro-Nicene theology from Athanasius to Augustine was united on certain things. Uh, for one thing, they were all classical theists um, and they all affirmed simplicity. Um, and so, Basically, my whole book was shot. I mean, I came to believe that the kind of book that I'd started out to write was fundamentally wrong, and so I never did write it. In fact, I went for about um, um, 13 years without publishing a mm. book between my second book and my third book. Uh, it took that long to reorient everything. I started teaching Augustine every other year. I started teaching a seminar on the fourth century theology every other year. I um, started teaching the doctrine of God every other year. And, um, and it, through this, this study, I basically came, became convinced that, that the 20th century is a wasteland. The 20th century was a big, gigantic mistake. It's supposed to be a revival of Trinitarian theology, but it's not a revival of Nicene theology. It's <laughs> Trinitarianism without classical theism. It's, uh, it's Trinitarianism without Christian orthodoxy. Uh, it's a new thing in the whole history of, of theology. There's never been anything like this before. There have been people before in the Enlightenment period who denied the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's never been a group of Trinitarians who were essentially pagan in their doctrine of God. Hmm. That is the new thing of the 20th century. And so I, um, but I had one more problem and that was, okay, so I'm going to write an, a book in which I say all that. But then I realized that the, the moderns are going to come back and they're going to say, well, you know, the church fathers were into allegory. The church fathers did not interpret the Bible correctly. The church fathers right. were uh, reading Greek philosophy into the Bible. So it's no wonder they had classical theism in their, in their theology. But we in the modern world, we read the Bible scientifically and neutrally and objectively, and we read it better than they do. And so therefore, when we read the Bible, we get a doctrine of God that is uh, the kind of doctrine of God that is predominant today. Um, and, so, and so I realized that unless I could deal with that objection, in other words, if, if Nicaea, if the orthodox doctrine of Nicaea be based in the Bible, 
But if the P formulated were not had, had bad hermeneutics, then you can't say it's based on the Bible. So I ended up writing a whole book on hermeneutics. I just ended up having to focus on hermeneutics so much that it, it resulted in interpreting scripture of the great tradition. And once that book was done, then I could get on to the, uh, to, so, so my hermeneutical interest, my, my, inter, my resolution of the problem with historical criticism was never really, that never really was fixed until I engaged the fathers and came to the conclusion that their interpretation of scripture was the right way to read scripture and not the wrong way, and that it was actually superior, as David Steinmetz says, to modern historical critical exegesis. Fascinating. So, so I find, okay, so this is your kind of movement from maybe not an allegiance to critical study, but at least an interest in it, an acceptance of it, uh, through the work of Brevard Childs. Uh, interesting, you say you've come to kind of uh, move away from Childs. Is there any particular reason why you would say that, or what's your argument? Uh, Childs, first of all, Childs' book on uh, the history of interpretation of Isaiah is one of the foundational books in my life. That's okay. one of the most important books I've ever read, because he shows there that uh, he shows the superiority of pre-critical exegesis. I mean, he demonstrates that that the uh, the history of the interpretation of Isaiah um, that the fathers and the pre-class, the pre-moderns. Um, did it well and did it right and that they were a long way from being subjective and 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 so on but you know that book was actually originally intended to be part of his isaiah commentary because you know that childs wrote the exodus commentary and that was a that was a real earth-shattering event back in back in the day back in the in the 80s and uh i remember when it first came out it was so exciting because because it had a, ch a section in each section of the commentary, there was a, a portion that dealt with the history of the exegesis of that section. Hmm. And that was so different because most critical, most commentaries in, in, when I was in seminary, you know, the, if they did the history of interpretation, they would start in 1770 or so. Right. And, 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 and he was doing something completely different. And so that was very exciting. When he went to do Isaiah, the editors of the Old Testament library in their infinite wisdom decided that his history of interpretation section was so long that it, it would not be included in his commentary. And so that's how come he published the Isaiah commentary with OTL, and then he published the, uh, Interesting. the Understanding Isaiah, Struggle to Understand Isaiah with uh, Erdman's as a separate book. And not only, and that's almost symbolic uh, in a way, because that's sort of the rejection of the of historical hermeneutics by the historical critical guild, and it's also it not only were they published in two separate books, but Childs in the Isaiah Commentary. I was never so disappointed in in a book. I, I remember I was I was waiting for that book to come out, and and I as I was maybe one of the few pastors in the world who who was waiting to pre-order the Isaiah Commentary by Childs and actually read it. Hmm. And what a letdown. It, it wow. was so bad. It was, just, it was just a rehash of historical critical things. He didn't really use the pre-critical exegesis that he so beautifully described in his other book to actually interpret the text of Isaiah. And so after that, I began to realize that Child's project was basically to try to do historical theology, historical critical study of the text on one track imagine a railroad track on one track is historical critical study and on the other track is the theological interpretation 
and he wants to do both. But the thing is that the railroad track goes on and on forever, and they, the two tracks never meet. They never intersect, which means that the historical hermeneutical approach of the pre-moderns never in child's work is allowed to correct the modern historical critical approach. Mm. They have to somehow coexist um, side by side forever. And that's what dissatisfied me about Charles. That's where I thought, you know, sooner or later, you know, Genesis 1-1 either teaches creation ex nihilo or it doesn't. It can't be, you can't have it both ways. Sooner or later, you have to choose. Was the classical tradition right or is the modern tradition right? And that's what Childs just, he seemed to his whole, whole theological method was designed to avoid making that choice. And that, that's where I see the flaw. It's not that he's, um, it's not that his instincts are wrong. Yes, he wants to interpret the text theologically. That's good. Mm. Um, he's open to the historical uh, history of pre-modern interpretation. That's good. But the where it breaks down is he just doesn't allow the time, he doesn't allow the tradition to correct the moderns. And that seems like that's what you've at least attempted to do in your recent book, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. You're going back to pre-modern exegesis. You're trying to show its theological integration uh, with reading scripture. So could you just kind of briefly define, and you already have a little bit, but what is the great tradition and what does that kind of mean for practical reading of scripture? Okay, the great tradition is the doctrine revealed in the Bible as articulated by the Orthodox Church Fathers in the creeds of the first five centuries of the undivided church, especially the Apostles' Creed as expanded by the Nicene Creed in 325 and 381, with the clarifications added in the uh, definition of Chalcedon 451. So this Trinitarian and Christological tradition is handed on to the Middle Ages through Augustine, summarized in Thomas Aquinas, presupposed by the Protestant reformers and by the post-Reformation scholastics in the 18th century evangelicals. It's attacked by the Enlightenment philosophers, but it continues undergird um, the Roman Catholic Church and all major confessional Protestant bodies uh, all right up to the present day. So it's to sum it up, the great tradition is what the Bible teaches about God and Christ and Orthodox Christians, both East and West, Roman and Protestant, agree and have always believed. That's helpful to hear. So in, in essence, then, the, the great tradition flows from Scripture. It is a theological reflection on its meaning. It is something that has a history to it in the, in the early councils, Nicaea, Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalcedon. It's something that's generally agreed upon in Christians. So then my kind of follow-up question to that is, if this is something that flows from Scripture, it's a theological reflection on Scripture, uh, why have you in your writings uh, called your approach um, Christian Platonism? Because that sort of suggests uh, maybe something that's not flowing from Scripture, given the word Platonism. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit? Okay. Um, my, my, my smart alecky answer is that I love that phrase because it annoys liberals. Uh, <laughs> The serious answer is a lot longer. So I want to defend Christian Platonism by using it as, as an occasion to talk about what it means to take biblical and orthodox theology seriously today. Orthodoxy means believing certain doctrines as the true teaching of Scripture. And these doctrines will include metaphysical ones like creation. 
So Christian Platonism is what the Bible teaches. And specifically, it is the metaphysical component of the belief system of the church fathers who developed the Nicene Creed in the fourth century. So I'm saying that it's the metaphysical presuppositions that are woven into the creedal tradition. Now, the Platonism part obviously comes from the Greek philosophical tradition, and it's modified considerably by the fathers, um, pr pr primarily with respect to creation ex nihilo. Uh, modernity, on the other hand, is a rejection of the Platonist tradition, and it's also a rejection of the Bible. And I think that the Bible and the Platonist tradition stand together, and modernity wishes to divide and conquer. Okay, now we're going to take a step back here. All the ancient cultures, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and down to the Greeks, were mythological. There were two intellectual traditions that challenged the hegemony of mythology, the Old Testament prophets on the one side and Greek philosophers on the other. So let's take the Old Testament for first. The Old Testament writers from say Moses to Ezra wrote in the context of the ancient Near Eastern mythological cultures. And they, what God revealed in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures is a polemic against and a correction of the mythology that dominated the cultures around Israel and the pagan religion based on them. What is mythology? Well, as I define it, following people like John Oswald and John Currid, uh, mythology is an understanding of reality in which there are no real ultimate distinctions between nature, humanity, and, and divinity. Nature, man, God are all part of one continuous reality. And constantly under the threat of chaos and disintegration. Matter, um, so, so the myths all involve a hero God who battles the chaos monster and establishes order and structure. And this order and structure becomes the, the basis for the civilization. And the sacral kingship and the priestly order maintain that, that order by cultic means. And so myth functions as the foundation of the social order and it provides meaning. Well, Israel was surrounded by mythological cultures, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaanite, and it was in a constant state of war with them, uh, perhaps best symbolized by the uh, confrontation of Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, Genesis is a polemic against, as I read it, is a polemic against mythology. And it reveals a transcendent creator because the transcendent creator is exactly what is left out of mythology. Mythology mm. includes the, the gods, that is these angelic level beings, to, which are the gods of the nations. It, in, it includes lots of those, but it doesn't say where they came from. And it doesn't say where matter came from. And it leaves out the transcendent God who in Israel's faith is above all that and who brought all that into being. All, and, and the leaving out of Yahweh is not just kind of some kind of innocent mistake. It, it, it is the element of rebellion against Yahweh that is expressed in all pagan religion. So that's how I understand mythology. Now, the other intellectual movement that, that challenged the hegemony of myth was um, a movement that started in Greece in the 6th to the 4th centuries BC, Thales and the pre-Socratics, and then it flowered in Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And, and the tradition that began there, that we call, that was always called Platonism up until recent times, 
um, it, it went on for a thousand years and it, it, it includes uh, Plato and Aristotle and the Middle Platonists and the academics and the Neoplatonists. It was still a living tradition in Augustine's day in the fourth century, fifth century AD. By then it was a millennium long. Now, the, the thing about the metaphysics of Greek tradition was that they saw order and structure inherent in nature. They saw nature as being inherently ordered and structured and therefore susceptible to scientific study. Um, and that meant that, that the, 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 so there was a struggle within Greek culture between the mythological approach to the world, where the gods were the only thing holding back the chaos, versus the metaphysicians who were believing that they, they did not believe in the gods being the ones that were saving us from chaos. They believed that nature was inherently orderly. And, and in, this, in this fight back and forth, um, Greek metaphysics never really, the philosophers never really won. They continued to exist as a tradition though. The church fathers never took seriously any of the other philosophical traditions. So they never took seriously the materialism of the atomists or the hedonism of the Epicureans or the pantheism of the Stoics. They rejected all that, but they, they found some things in the Platonist tradition that they could, that they saw as, as co compatible with, with biblical revelation, such as the idea that God is the immutable, simple, perfect, eternal, uncaused, uh, perfectly actualized, uh, unmoved mover who causes the whole world. They, they, the idea that God is separate from this, this cosmos and, and the cause of it, that was attractive to Christianity, and they, they were convinced that that was true, that there is a, this unmoved mover. So, of course, then the question becomes, okay, if, the, if we believe that there is an unmoved mover, a simple, eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent self being, what's the relationship of the God of Israel to that God? Is the God of Israel uh, part of what that God creates? Or does the God of Israel create that God? Or is the God of Israel identical with that one? And the church fathers came to believe that they couldn't preach the Bible and the doctrine of God as a transcendent creator without saying that the God of Israel was in fact the God of the philosophers, the God, the, the, the uncaused cause, the, the unmoved mover, right. the one who is responsible for the existence of the, of the universe. So the mystery was how this perfectly actual, simple, eternal, immutable God could create and speak and act in judgment and salvation. That's mysterious. But all the church fathers assumed, well, we have, they, they, they all said, well, we have to assume that it happened because it, it happened. Like, mm -hmm. like, we know that there's a cause of the universe and we know that God has spoken in through the prophets. So, we don't have any theory to explain how this immutable one can speak and act in history. All we can tell you is that he has done so. And it's our responsibility to reflect on the meaning of that. So um, there was no sense of, uh, there's no point in denying that the God of Israel is the God of the philosophers, because if you did that, you left open the question of whether in fact the God of Israel is just another tribal deity like the God of gods of Egypt or the gods of Greece. Um, if you want to affirm that he's the transcendent creator of all, then he's got to be what the Greeks saw as. So, so, in, so when you come to John 1, 
you already see the influence of Greek philosophy in the Bible itself. So John takes the concept of logos. Now logos is the principle of rationality at the heart of the cosmos in Stoic understanding. And so what John says is that all things were created through the logos so that the logos imprints rationality on the structures of reality. And that's why the seasons work. And that's why the flocks are fertile. That's why the laws of nature operate because the logos created the world according to a, a system, according to a, a rational order. But then John says something incredible. He says that the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the mm. logos becomes personal and speaks and acts. No Greek philosopher ever said anything like that. But it's significant that John doesn't say, oh, Greeks use the word logos, so I'd better get a different, particularly Jewish word that doesn't have any taint of Greek philosophy on it and use that to describe Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. He takes the logos and he redefines that word in a Christian biblical way. That is the essence of, I think, what's going on in the great tradition is the, 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 the Christians are taking Greek philosophical concepts and pressing them into the service of explaining what the Bible says. And so trying to disentangle the, the Greek influence from the Jewish influence in early Christianity, including the New Testament itself, is a fool's errand. It, it can't be done. And so that means that there are certain philosophical, metaphysical implications of biblical teaching that we cannot make optional. That's what I'm trying to get at by saying that we need to retain Christian Platonism. What, what I mean is not everything Plato ever wrote. I don't mean Plato as opposed to Aristotle. What I'm getting at is there are certain philosophical terms and ideas and concepts that are integral to Christian orthodoxy. And yes, they do have a lineage in Greek philosophy, but so what? Um, there may have been movable worship tents used in Egypt uh, that were predecessors of the tabernacle. And the question is, so what? That doesn't invalidate the tabernacle as a, as a means that God took and used to reveal his nature to Israel. Right. And it's the same thing with a Greek philosophical concept. And so, um, and so the idea of modernity is they want to reject not only Christian Platonism, they want to reject that whole metaphysical pre-modern tradition. But in doing so, they're implicitly rejecting certain key doctrines that Christians can't give up. So that's why we have to fight for this. That's interesting. I, I've kind of thought about it this way before. It's like you don't need uh, necessarily biblical revelation to tell you that the sun or stars or moon exist because you can see them. Granted, scripture still does say that. And so when it comes to some of these kind of metaphysical realities, uh, the idea that the eternal nature of God being discerned through creation, yeah, of course, anyone possibly can do that through the light of nature. But just because someone recognized that doesn't make it wrong. It can be right and wrong. And you have to discern that through biblical revelation, through biblical wisdom. And it sounds to me that's something similar to what you're doing right here. You're saying, look, uh, the Greek philosophers got some things right, some things correct, in particularly the Platonists, the light of nature. And insofar as that they are correct, we can adopt those things because they're just recognizable, they're clear, they're revealed in nature and understandable to everyone. It's interesting to me too, um, one of the reformed, uh, Manus Polinus, I was reading him re somewhat recently, and he goes to John 1, I think in verse 9, 
where it says the Logos illumines humankind. He actually sees that as a sort of illuminating uh, presence of the light of nature so that people can, kind of like in Romans 1, discern the things that God has revealed about his invisible nature and so on. So I, I think what you're saying does make a lot of sense, and I think it does kind of clarify what you mean by Christian Platonism. It's not necessarily Plato or everything that he said, but it's the things that he's able to discern through the light of nature that are true because they are true. Is that getting well, close? Right. The key thing is that there is something immutable yeah. and eternal that undergirds the present world of flux and change and makes this world, uh, makes it possible for this world to exist. That's mm. what the Christians and the Platonists both believe. For creation ex nihilo. Yeah, and moderns don't believe that. Moderns, moderns just believe that, moderns have actually gone back and, and see, this is the next book now, but, but the, <laughs> but the, Modernity has actually is actually relapsing back into ancient Near Eastern mythology, because modernity is is based on philosophical naturalism. It says that the cosmos is a unity, and if there is any if there is a god or gods, then that god or gods has to be part of the continuity of the totality of the cosmos. It can't be transcendent of it. It has to be somehow either pantheism, God and nature are identical or polytheism, or some kind of ver variation on those. So I think that, uh, I think that the, uh, the idea that we, we can give up uh, certain, you know, it really bothers me when people start attacking Platonism, uh, because it's very easy to, to, to bring, to attack scripture without realizing it when you're attacking Platonism. For example, in Hebrews, when, when Christ enters into the heavenly, uh, the heavenly holy of holies, you know, the whole thought world there seems to be that there's this, there's this eternal um, throne room, and there's this eternal altar and this eternal worship of God going on. And the tabernacle on earth, the temple, is just a copy of that heavenly reality. And that when Jesus enters into that heavenly reality and does the real thing, he makes atonement, he then sits down and it's all finished. And, and that what happens in earth affects heaven and is determinative of what happens on earth. And see, this is a, not, a very anti-modern way of thinking. For us, earth is the center. Earth is, earth is the, this is where it's at. This is, this is where the action is. And in modern theolo theologians, um, uh, many modern theologians, uh, history, the unfolding history of this world, is the is itself the what determines the nature of God, mm. and the biblical worldview agrees with the Greek metaphysical worldview that no, <clears throat> this world is the shadow and that world is the reality. God is the sun, and our sun is is just a derivative light that that right. gets its light from the real sun. These are completely opposite ways of thinking. Either this is the center or that's the center. They can't both be the center. You know, what you're saying is, is kind of alluding to, uh, so Exodus 24, you have Moses, 70 elders, and Joshua. And they come to the mountain. They come to the middle of the mountain. And then they have uh, a meal with God. And the ground there is transfigured into this heavenly ground. So they end up entering into sort of a heavenly place. And then Moses and Joshua alone go to the top and it looks like just Moses alone at this point, goes into the kind of inner dark cloud of God. He's there for 40 days, and when he comes down, according to, uh, he 
gives, you know, all the information that he learned there. And Exodus 25, 40, which Hebrews is citing, says that uh, Israel made the tabernacle after the pattern that Moses saw at the third stage of his heavenly vision on Mount Sinai. So this isn't something that is sort of, in my view, uh, imposed outside of scripture onto scripture, but it's actually part of the world that scripture itself builds for us to see. And of course, Genesis 1 is also there. So you have creation of nothing, which is a a massive uh, metaphysical uh, kind of doctrine as well. Well, I think think that's right. I think the scripture is, is saying something that is true. And Greek philosophers get a partial glimpse into some of those truths. And so insofar as they do, there's an agreement. But the idea that that the um, the idea that what a lot of people today would popularly refer to as Platonism, um, what they're rejecting is, as you just gave an example, and I just gave an example, things that arise from within the Bible itself. And so my worry is that when people are attacking Christian Platonism, whether wittingly or unwittingly, they're actually attacking the the structure of the, the meaning structure of the Bible itself. Hmm. That's that's helpful to hear. I think it gives some clarity to what you're meaning by that phrase and how it actually is something that is embedded in Scripture and arises from it, and it's a theological reflection about what God says, not what it, we're usually accused of doing is imposing sort of Greek thought. Uh, let's see if we can maybe just kind of pivot a little bit to uh, move to a slightly different topic. We've kind of covered Christian Platonism, and then through that, we talked a little bit about metaphysics. Uh, you've also mentioned earlier about, you know, the great tradition is uh, part of the Nicene Creed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of people now talking about something called classic theology, classic theism. Uh, they mention the Nicene Creed, they mention metaphysics. Can you kind of pull that idea together to help us understand what is classic theism? How does it relate to metaphysics? How does it relate to the great tradition? And maybe just kind of speak a little bit about why it's important for today. Well, classical theism is under attack in the in the modern world. Um, you can see classical theism. Classical theism is basically the doctrine that God is simple, eternal, immutable, self-existent, uh, perfect, um, first cause of the universe. Um, classical theists typically would believe that you could prove, you could demonstrate the existence of God by reason. Um, the best book on that is uh, Ed Fazer's book, Five Proofs for the Existence of God. This is not the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. The Thomistic proof is just one of the five. There's the Aristotelian proof, the Augustinian proof, the Thomistic proof, the, the Platonic, Neoplatonist proof, and Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason. So these are the five proofs that he that he deals with. So classical theism believes that you can demonstrate by reason the existence of God and that that's what God is. So what I discovered, as I said earlier, in my study of the fathers was that um, all the fathers were classical theists in the sense. Um, you read Khalid Anatolios, the retreating Nicaea. Um, he, he makes a list of what all the parties to the Nicene debate held in common at the beginning of the fourth century. And so uh, the the ones who were on the Arian side and the ones who were on the Nicene side, they were all, they all believed, for example, in in divine simplicity. So so in the fourth century, even the heretics believed in classical theism. Right. So uh, 
<laughs> so the, the problem between Arius and Athanasius was something different. Uh, it was whether you could, it was really about whether you could include the Son in the divine simplicity or not, or whether divine simplicity only applies to the Father. And so that was a big debate. The Cappadocians were central in that debate. But classical theism, um, the, the way I understand the Christian Orthodox doctrine of God is that it is it consists of classical theism plus Trinitarianism. These two things are integrated together. Um, there are no Trinitarian pagan views of God. Aristotle doesn't have any concept of a trinity. So now Plotinus maybe, but 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 Trinity is something that's that's the biblical content. The the, the triune, the, the the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, the fact that God speaks and acts in history, that's what they were getting from reading their Bible. And then they were trying to integrate that with the classical theist understanding of God. So classical theism is what's being rejected today. And so a lot of people think that you can reject classical theism, but keep biblical Trinitarianism. Hmm. That's what I'm saying you cannot do. That, that's, that's, the, that's the thing that, that cannot happen. Um, the Bible, in order to be biblical, we, we need classical theism because classical theism allows us to express the transcendence of God. It, it prevents us from thinking of God as just a part of the cosmos, either the soul of the cosmos or an actor within the cosmos. There's something called theistic personalism that's very widespread today. And that idea is that God is a being. He's um, a, a, a disembodied mind, um, very powerful and very old and very wise and very um, a, the, the, the smartest, wisest, biggest thing of all. And, but he's essentially a person like us interacting with other beings in the universe. Is, that is what people tend to gravitate to when they reject classical theism. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is that by conceiving of God in that way, they are no longer conceiving of God as the transcendent creator of Genesis 1-1. Mm -hmm. And because they're no longer create, conceiving of God as the transcendent creator, they are in mortal danger of falling into mythology. And that's what I think that the Moltmans and Pannenbergs of this, of this world do. They end up falling into mythology. And God becomes a name for a portion of the cosmos or the cosmos as the whole. And, and they, they no longer believe in the transcendent creator of, of scripture. And it's easy to have happen to you. And, um, and so that's why classical theism kind of functions as a way of preventing that. So you, the, the mystery is, we can't explain how the classical theist God is the God of Revelation, but we don't have to explain it. We're, we confess it. We, we, we discuss it. We, 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 we articulate it. But we don't have to explain the how, because the how goes far beyond our finite human comprehension. So if we're talking about God in terms of classical theology, he's simple, without parts, passion and passive potency. He's immutable. He cannot change. Uh, he's impassable. He, he, that means he's spirit. All these kind of uh, big picture confessions we have. And yet as Christians, we all confess that God became human. He became flesh. You cited uh, John 1.14 earlier. How do you correlate these things where you have an unchangeable God who then assumes human flesh? Is that not a, like, does he change? 
where you have an impassable God who cannot suffer, and then Christ does suffer. How do we kind of hold these two confessions together, and how do they not, you know, conflict with each other? Well, see, this is where the Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy um, fits together as a unified system of thought. You, you have to, as soon as you say that the classical theist God is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you immediately have those questions raised. And, and that's why the church had to debate them at Chalcedon. So we do not believe that God became human. Um, that, that, that's, that's, that's a heresy called Eutychianism. What we actually believe and confess, according to Chalcedon and Nicaea, is that the eternal Son, second person of the Trinity, assumed into the hypostatic union with itself a human nature, so that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, fully human, fully divine. His, his human nature is fully human. His divine nature is fully divine. Jesus Christ as the person is fully human and fully divine by virtue of having those two natures. But the two natures are never confused or transmuted into each other or blended together. And they are, they are eternally uh, separate in the sense of remaining completely what they are themselves. They, in the process of the hypostatic union, whatever the hypostatic union is taken to mean, it does not mean that the divine nature becomes any less divine or the human nature becomes any less human. It means that they coexist in one person um, in, in a way that is per, beyond our understanding. All human, all theology is done by analogy. All human language for God is analogical. So we take things from our experience and we compare them to God. So we know what a father is, we say God's a father. So there's, there's many things about fatherness, about fatherhood, which are not, uh, not the same in human and, and God, in humans and God. But there's a point of comparison. And the problem with the hypostatic union is that we have no analogies. Hmm. Every human person is one person with one nature. But none of us have two natures. And so it's very, it's really impossible for us to specify exactly how the hypostatic union works. And so if you read Chalcedon, there's no explanation of the mechanics of the how. Chalcedon is all about defining what you must not say, lest you fall into heresy. And it's about, it's about believing in the two natures. So, so when, we, when we say, now, not everything that one says about the human nature of Christ should be said about the divine nature of Christ, and not everything that is said about the human nature of Christ or the divine nature of Christ can be said about the person of Christ. There's three, three, different, three different things there. We... Uh, one at a time and not, and not make the mistake. Don't take things that are true of the person and apply them to the divine nature or the human nature. Don't take things that are true of the human nature and apply them to the divine nature. Keep these three things clear. And so um, when we say that, so is there a true sense in which it is right to say that God suffered on the cross? There is a true sense. Moltmann does not get the right true sense. Right. Moltmann says it in the wrong sense because the right sense is to say that Christ suffered in his human nature on the cross. Moltmann wants to say that God, the Trinity, suffered on the cross. Mm -hmm. He wants to say that the divine nature suffered on the cross, but the fathers refused to say that. The fathers called that heresy, patripassianism, 
the idea that the father suffers on the cross. But they would have been equally horrified to hear someone say that the divine nature of Christ suffers and dies on the cross. Now, if you want to say that, so, so the human nature dies on the cross, the divine nature does not die on the cross. Well, what about the person? That's where it becomes tricky. Right. Then we say the person died on the cross insofar as that whatever happens to the human person of Jesus Christ happens to Jesus Christ. But in his divine nature, Christ suffered impassably. Which means divine nature was joined to his human nature in such a way that the two things were, were part of the same person. And so in that sense, whatever happens to one happens to both, but the effect of the suffering is different on the human nature and on the divine nature. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, insofar as he's human, he dies. But the divine nature doesn't die. It doesn't even change. And so, the, so what this is, this is a complicated, well-thought-out way of speaking so as to avoid heresy and confess all that Scripture teaches. That's really what this is. Uh, it's not meant to be uh, an explanation of the, of the mechanics of how. Mm. Um, the point of Chalcedon, the point of Christology, is not that it's a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be worshipped. And, and so that's, that's, that's my answer to that. Uh, that's really helpful. So it is the word who became flesh and the word Christ, the person lived and suffered. And he suffered according to his humanity, which is passable. Although we wouldn't want to say that he suffered according to his divinity, which is impassable. Is that maybe a, a short way summary of what you're getting at? Or is it, or is that too clean? Yes. Yeah. The word became, Gidemai is one of the most, complicated words to think about in the New Testament. When the word became flesh, it means that the word assumed into union with itself a human nature. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the word turned into a human nature. That would be the distinction. Got it. Well, that's helpful. I think that's one of those things that we're all a little bit confused of. And you get into classical theology, you, you want to confess the impassable, immutable, simple God but it becomes hard because the object of our devotion is most centrally uh, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ uh, wept, suffered, hungered, thirsted, and slept. And then we hear a lot of people talking about how, you know, God in Christ is, uh, is suffering alongside of us, is, is doing these things alongside of us. And it feels very comforting. Uh, but there, are, there is a mystery to be observed is kind of what you're pressing into. And that mystery, I don't think, denies that Jesus, in fact, suffers alongside of us. But what it's trying to maintain is that God remains God. He's always going to be the transcendent one who created and therefore is outside of creation. He's not a being among beings. Is that kind of a helpful way to put what you're, summarizing, what you're saying as well? Well, you know what? I don't think that it, I, I, everybody says that it's comforting that God suffers along with us. Hmm. Eli Weissel, in his book, um, Night, uh, his experience in Auschwitz, there's a story about a, a, the guards take a, tenure, uh, a young boy and they hang him. And he's, he's hanging on the gallows and all the prisoners have to walk by. And one of the prisoners says, where is God? And, and the protagonist in the book says, he's there hanging on the gallows. Hmm. 
To me, that is despair. So let's imagine that you are Scholzenitsyn in the gulag of a, of a totalitarian uh, regime that is persecuting its own people and it's powerful, it's, it's armed with nuclear weapons. What hope is there for you? How, how could you ever escape? And let's say that you hear uh, that one of the prisoners has a radio and is getting Voice of America broadcasts. And the Americans are broadcasting into Russia, in Russian, saying that the Soviet communist empire is the evil empire and it cannot last forever and it's eventually going to fall. Okay, you're a prisoner, if you're Solzhenitsyn, is it more comforting to think that God is lying on the next bunk bed suffering along with you as a prisoner or to think of god as guiding the hand of the american president sending propaganda into russia and and potentially uh engaging in the cold war to overthrow this this godless totalitarian regime you see see the the god god who works through the americans to overthrow the russian regime has the power to save you potentially your bunkmate does not so for somebody to say that it's more comforting to me to know that God's suffering alongside of me versus he's way off remotely, you know, way across the ocean in the White House or, or even the God who's guiding the hand of the person's way across the ocean in the White House. In other words, that God is way far above me and remote from me and much, much greater than me and beyond my imagination. What's more comforting? I, I would rather believe in the God who is high above me and, and all powerful and who is beyond my imagination. Mm. Because in that God, I can place my hope. Mm. My bunkmate, my, my bunkmate, my fellow prisoner is not going to save me. Right. So I don't understand why people think it's more comforting to imagine God as my fellow sufferer than to imagine God as the sovereign of the universe. Yeah, well, I think when you tease it out that way, it becomes more obvious. And I think that was a helpful illustration to use to kind of show why some of the classical theology stuff actually makes sense for our real life. It's not merely just a sort of uh, definition of God, though it is, but because of who God truly is, he can actually help us in our time of need. He's not the man in the gallows. He's the God above creation that orders, controls, and can save. Yes, and, and this is why this, this doctrine of God has persisted for, I would argue, it starts with Moses. Hmm. Uh, I would argue that this doctrine of God has now been enlivening a community of believers and providing comfort for 3,000 years. Hmm. And I, I think that that, uh, that's, that is testimony. You know, I don't think that that kind of doctrine could exist that long and be embodied in a church or in a, in a community of believers for that long um, without having an awful lot of practical right. relevance. And right. so somebody to say it has no practical relevance just does not seem to be credible to me. Uh, I don't know if you'd recommend this, but one of my, I think you would, one of my favorite books on this is, is uh, Thomas Wynandy's Does God Suffer? Mm -hmm. I found that incredibly helpful because he maintains the kind of impassibility doctrine, but actually shows that it's much more comforting that God is impassable and so unable to suffer for us when we're going through trials. Because you want a God who 
isn't worried about losing love, isn't worried about harming himself, but can always and fully and gratuitously save and help you. Would there be any other books, that, as we kind of close down here, that you'd recommend on the topic of classical theology? Uh, your book, obviously, but uh, that uh, you have. Yes, I, I would highly recommend this book, James Dozell, All That mm. Is In God. Um, he's also written a, a more scholarly book on divine simplicity. But this is a, a more practical book for pastors, and it shows that uh, it's scary because it shows that um, it's not just Protestant liberals, but it's reformed confessing Calvinists who are um, falling into what Dozell calls theistic mutualism, what I would call the uh, theistic personalism, the uh, or relational theism, the idea that God and the world are in a relationship of give and take, where God affects the world, then the world affects God, and then God changes the world, then the world changes God, and it's back and forth, and it's evolving together. That's theistic mutualism, and that is creeping into even the most conservative, confessional Protestant churches, and it's... Uh, it is uh, the end of classical theism, and it's the end of Christianity. Book is extremely important in in terms of bringing some of those issues to the surface. You know, in a way that is not as um, scholarly. It's not scholarly intimidating. It's 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 it's. Uh, I would say a good book for pastors. So I, I would really recommend that. Um, I would also recommend uh, Ed Facer's book, The Last Superstition. Hmm. Um, it's written as a refutation of the new atheists, but it actually contains a brief history of Western philosophy, which is uh, extremely helpful in distinguishing between pre-modern and modern philosophy. Um, yeah, in terms of classical theism, there's there's so many good books uh, and many old books that are that are uh, are tremendous. Um, so. Um, yeah, I, I hardly even know where to start. But it, once you once you start reading in Dolzell, um, there is one book that that is helpful. Um, uh, Brian Davies, A Philosophy of Religion, Oxford Press, third edition. Um, the first chapter of that book uh, explains the difference between classical theism and theistic personalism extremely well. Very mm. again, in ten pages, you can. It's an excellent introduction to that. Great. Well, those are helpful. Now, as we close, why don't you uh, let us know about your new book on the doctrine of God that's coming out? I know it's a little ways out, but just kind of mention maybe what the topic well, is. A, and It's really part two of Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. So the title is Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Premodern Exegesis. This one is Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, Recovering Trinitarian Classical Theism. So it talks about a lot of the things I've talked about today. Uh, it, it it gives a, a summary of the classical theist tradition in a chapter, uh, 25 theses. And then I have four uh, chapters on Isaiah 40 to uh, 48, um, where, I, where I unpack the idea that the, the doctrine of God that we find in, in Isaiah. And then I have several chapters on fourth century Nicene theology, showing that basically you have the same doctrine of God, the same themes of transcendence, monotheism, and um, sovereignty in Isaiah and in the pro-Nicene theology. So it's a, it's a kind of a way of, and then the last chapter summarizes the, um, summarizes the, uh, the, the modern the contemporary situation. One of the things that I'm going to ar argue in that book, and, and uh, this is something that in a way, I'm going to put interpreting scripture into practice. I'm going to say, 
we should not only we should we should not try to come to scripture with no presuppositions but we should come to scripture we should try to figure out a method and i propose a method in this book of how to come to scripture with scriptural presuppositions and that <laughs> means um basically a spiral method where we do a first exegesis and we derive exegetical results they coalesce into doctrines those doctrines generate metaphysical implications then we take those metaphysical implications and those doctrines and we go back and we do a second exegesis of scripture and we understand deeper meaning as we build up a way of interpreting each text in the light of the whole of the canon of scripture so that um, uh, our theology becomes more and more biblical as we do this more and more. So that this is kind of a, a uh, it's presupposing interpreting scripture, but it's 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 applying that to the to the question of the doctrine of God. And then I think in the future, um, I think the uh, the trilogy needs to be rounded out with a book on doing metaphysics with the great tradition. Hmm. Uh, but that's down. <clears throat> well, sounds good. I I'll look forward to reading that, and maybe we can talk again about it once it comes out. Thank you so much for. Uh, talking, discussing these things with me. It was really cool to kind of hear all this about classical theology, the great tradition, and to kind of learn from your, your thoughts on this after years of teaching uh, through these things. It's been really insightful. Thanks. It's been uh, great to be with you, Wyatt, and uh, all the best with your new podcast. Thanks. <laughs>